Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Carl Sudler, Assistant Professor of History at Emory University. Dr. Sudler is a scholar of 20th century U.S. history, African American history, histories of crime and punishment, the carceral state, and sport history. Dr. Sudler is on the podcast to discuss presumed criminal, black youth, and the justice system in post-war New York, published in 2019 by New York University Press. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, Dr. Sudler. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, and, you know, we, we've been talking about getting you on for a minute, so uh, super duper happy uh, that we were able to get that going. So uh, let, let's get it going with the first question. Tell us how you came to this project. Yeah, so... Like many historians, the first my first book derived largely out of my dissertation, right? And so how I got to the dissertation topic is different than how I got to what became the book. But what became the book or the big revision, right, from dissertation to book manuscript, it occurred honestly with a title change, right, that reframed the angle of the analysis. My dissertation was titled Young Forever, The Criminalization of Black Youth from 1939 to 1964. Uh, I may be messing up uh, part of the subtitle there, but the title was <laughs> Young Forever, um, hence the double entendre of the afterword title in the book. But in the dissertation, I was much more concerned about measuring the unfairness of the juvenile justice system as one that protected white youth from the adult criminal stigma, one that allowed them to be, quote unquote, young forever. Um Right. So I so I make the case about how youth became a privilege that was granted to white kids over much longer periods of time than what it did for black ones. Uh, so when I was thinking about some of the questions that came out of the defense and working many of the ideas in the revision process off of my postdoc cohort at the James Walden Johnson Institute, I realized that I didn't need the comparative to show the unlevel of fairness, all right, the level of unfairness, I should say, that the juvenile justice system, especially in this period, right, from the 1930s to the 1960s, was one that presumed Black youths to be criminal. So I wanted to really show how, where, and who were active in making this happen. Outstanding. And so can you also describe uh, because you write about this early on uh, in in the book, um, describe what it meant to begin writing "Presumed Criminal" in the wake of Trayvon Martin's murder in 2012, and you know the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, no, so it was uh, it was important, right? Um, the bulk of the dissertation writing happens from 2012 to 2014, right? Or put differently, it happens between. Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. Uh, I was a graduate student at Indiana University at the time. And in that moment, dissociating the past from the present was was tough. Um, professors and peers both were preaching that history was about change over time. And I found myself struggling with, with that notion, uh, especially in that moment, to find this kind of break from the past because so many of the sources that I was living amongst from the first half of the 20th century just seemed to be incredibly relevant, right? And so I was conflicted and I was worried 
that maybe it was me, right? That was reading too much of the present into the past. And I'm sure I was to a certain degree. But uh, I mean, I couldn't help but think about Ferguson when I was writing the chapter about the 1943 Harlem uprising, right? And I couldn't help but think about Sabrina Fulton and Leslie McSpadden and Samaria Rice and Gwen Carr, right? The mothers of Martin Brown, Tamir Rice and Eric Garner, respectively. When I was writing about the mothers of the Harlem Six from 1964, and so while everyone kept reminding me about how timely the project was that I was working on, the sad reality was that I've not identified a decade where it wouldn't have been. And it seems that this precarious position that Black youths find themselves navigating in the U.S. legal system has changed over time in theory, but hardly in practice. Yeah, no, and and you know, I'm you know, as many of the listeners know, I'm I'm actually from uh, you know, not far from uh where Trayvon Martin uh, you know, ended up uh, being murdered, you know, Sanford, Florida and Warner Park, Florida and not uh very far away as well. And so just, you know, when I when I realized that after reading um the first couple passages from your from from your book when I was going through, I was like, wow, like it took me back, right? And it's hard to believe that was almost 10 years ago. Uh right. now as well, which seems like so long ago. Um and so so you described, you know, the 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 writing process a bit and you said 2012 to 2014. So between uh Trayvon and, and Mike Brown's murders, um, you know, so so let's pivot a little bit more to, you know, the research and the writing experience uh more and right and that it really took to to create a presumed criminal because you know as as listeners know i always love learning about uh the process especially when it's it incorporates the dissertations right so i mean like many historians i dedicated most of my time to the archive right i um i traveled a bunch um and in and around new york city uh so you know the 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 archives that are present in the book, right, whether we're talking about from Columbia or the Schomburg um, State Archives in New York, but but also the project took me elsewhere. Um, I, w- I was up at the Gottlieb Archive Center at Boston University. Um, there was a moment where I thought the book was going to be about New York and Los Angeles. So I uh, <laughs> spent a couple of months doing some archival research out in L.A. at the uh, Urban Archive Center at Cal State Northridge. Um, some of that stuff didn't make its way into the book um, as a revisions, you know. So that that kind of stuff is on the chopping block, if you will. But um, but you know, it's largely archival, right? Um, in terms of the research from the text and and the writing, you know, I'm a part of part of why in my acknowledgments I shout out the baristas and the various coffee shops that took basically all of my fellowship money over the years um, is because I'm a coffee shop writer. And, uh, you know, so, so most of the time I, I spent an archive, not necessarily writing, but collecting, right. And, you know, try to get as many copies and photos as I could. Um, And then, you know, take the stuff home, make sense of what I was thinking about. I was writing and just take, mountains of folders into coffee shops and just sit there and um, start to make sense of some of this. Um, and so, so for me, it was, you know, it, it was collect, 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 uh, sit down, try to make sense of it. You know, I once had a professor tell me that 
you can't think and write at the same time. Um, so that you need your thinking time and that you need your writing time. And I didn't know how valuable that advice was going to be until I got to the point where I was really revising the dissertation into a book manuscript um, and separating the two. Look, hey, look, I'm I'm writing that down just so I don't forget from my doggone self because, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) having the... To, to to pick up on these you know different writing uh skills and and techniques and and also thinking right you know you're you know uh the 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 comment about uh you know you cannot write and, and and think at the same time makes me just think like man that is so valuable right and um it's why sometimes you got to get away so, so that you can think um and and especially during you know as, as you know who, who who knows when the person is uh listening to this right might be in two years and, you know, in a post run world. Uh, but one thing's for certain, y'all get outside and, and smell the roses because it might just give you something great. Um, and so uh, going, going more towards the book, um, you know, considering how, you know, you know, you're talking about a, a, a very important topic, right? Something that's, I think, very topical uh, for, for a lot of us, especially with uh, the, some of the recent murders that we've seen um, across our space here, unfortunately, in 2020. Um, considering how black youth are typically perceived as you know, older than they typically are, right? And this is going to, to the book. How do you deploy the term youth in, 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 in presumed criminal? Yeah, so I look at, or I use youth, right, as sort of this category to refer to both young men and women up through their early 20s. Um, and for some people that's, you know, once you're over 18, it's over, right? You're no longer a youth. Um, but for me, what you what you really find is that, in, especially in legal proceedings, that there's often variation, right, across race and gender, both. And, you know, one kind of nugget that I talk about in the book is even how we document arrests, right? That has changed over time. There was a moment when you know, we documented crime or arrest in age categories that were once labeled under 21. Um, that actual category changes to under 18 in this period that I'm looking looking at, um, largely because the under 21 category becomes so padded and useless as most arrests were happening in this age range across the country. And so in order to make distinctions amongst this age group, uh, the federal, uh, the FBI, right, who documents these arrests through the Uniform Crime Reports, uh, bring the age down, right? Bring the age down to under 18. So that way there's individualized categories for all those who are 19, 20, and 21. Um, right? And, and, and that was, while it seems small and it might seem trivial to many, uh, it's also kind of an important marker that we learn as up to that point, there were so many conversations about youth status being given to those who were up to the age of 21, right? So when the federal government intervenes and makes this category under 18, it also kind of reinforces the idea that youth is no longer a status given to those over 18. Um, But we also learned that that's just not the case, right? And that that has many racial and gender uh, ramifications. 
Very true. Very true. And uh, what I think one of the more interesting, right, as 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 a reader who's uh, not as well versed in uh, the 20th century, but I will be after reading for exams, uh, you know, the 20th century, uh, uh, you know, experience uh, of black youth. Um, you know, you, you made um, you, you said, actually, uh Youth experiences were largely omitted from the historical narrative of New York City's uh, poor war struggle toward equality. Can you talk to us more about why do you think that 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 was the case before uh, you wrote Presumed Criminal? Yeah, um, well, I mean, even as a non 20th century person, right, somebody who does African-American history knows that it's it's hard to read the silences of the archives. Right. It's hard to you know, plug in gaps when there isn't necessarily coming from when, when, when it's not, when the experiences that you want to talk about is, aren't necessarily coming from the people you want to talk about. Right. And so when you think about the limits of the archival documents from youth perspectives, generally they're about youth perspectives. They're not necessarily from youth perspectives. And so you have to work with these gaps where you can, um, but there are some gems that you will come across, right, in the archive. And, you know, there are various kind of childhood and youth studies scholars who I kind of build on and look to that have been pivotal in, in helping me even understand how to go about this, right? You know, shout out Marsha Chatelaine, Lakeisha Simmons, right? Like folks that are really kind of doing a lot of this work around, like, girlhood, um, you know, up-and-comers like Sam White, Um Right. But 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 but, you know, there are folks, right, that are really kind of fighting with this notion about how to find archival documents uh, from youth perspectives. Right. Because young people just, you know, it's, it's not the nature of being young. Right. The idea of leaving something in the archive. Uh, but when you have these gems, you have to kind of capitalize on them because they are extremely important. Right. So one example in the book is. In I think the fifth chapter about the Harlem Six, but um, Conrad Lynn ends up picking up the case years in, and he's an attorney whose papers ultimately end up being housed at Boston University. And these papers became a gold mine because he kept letters and correspondence from the youths themselves, right, both while they were incarcerated and then once they got out. And so being able to capture their firsthand experiences of how they navigated the trial, not only from the perspectives of the lawyers and the courts and the press, but also from the youth themselves, right? It was, you know, it, to, to me, it really makes the story that much uh, stronger, right? That much more powerful and beautiful to kind of read. Um, but, you know, again, I think it draws us back to this kind of question about categorization. I also have some crazy stories about the images in that chapter. Uh, that chapter ended up costing a pretty penny, as anybody who knows who lives in the world of dealing with images that are younger than 100 years old, right? Copyrights and permissions can get expensive. And the only pictures initially in the Harlem Six chapter were. It, the images from their time of the arrest, right? And so the images that I include in that chapter of Wallace Baker, of Walter Thomas, and of Willie Craig being released actually came up at the last minute because of how they were categorized. Um, so not to get into many of the particulars of the trial, but 
here we have six youths in Harlem that are arrested for an alleged murder of a white woman shopkeeper. And off the top of my head, I can't remember how many trials and retrials they go through, but Daniel Hamm and Robert Bryce accept plea deals and they get sentenced ahead of the other four. And this is this happened somewhere around the seven-year mark, right, of these guys sitting in jail. Uh, so the media coverage of the case changes and they start referring to them as the Harlem Four and not the Harlem Six. And so the images of the release are all categorized as the Harlem Four. Um, so if you would have ever done a search of the Harlem Six, you would have never returned these images, right? And so once I saw the release images, I knew I needed to have them in the book because what we see in the contrast between when they get arrested to when they are released is how these youths age, Why, right? As they're kind of awaiting their verdicts, um, mm-hmm. they're, all, they're all in jail for nine years. And it demonstrates just how brutal that system can be, even when it's working, uh, quote unquote, for young people, right? Because we see these four end up getting out. However, they get out nine years later, right? And, you know, so being under 18 at the time of arrest and being almost 30 at time of release, right? That's an incredibly pivotal moment of a young person's life um, that when, you know, it's one thing to read, it's another thing to see. And um, and so, yeah, so when, when you have these kind of moments in the archive where you can show age from age perspective, right? You know, you have to do it. You have to jump on it. And and you and you did and and y'all when y'all go get this book right we know you're gonna get a presumed criminal it's all right you know you gonna put it on your list on your summer reading list is you know you sit out on your porch and read it it's a very it's a very in, insightful book um, especially for me because my mom grew up in the '60s and the '70s uh, and it was in Brooklyn but you know still New York um, on the island and so. Um, I actually learned a lot uh, in a way about her, you know, what, what was going on around her own um, youth experience al- along with my uncles. Um, and, and so you spoke about it a bit before as far as your uh, the sources that you're drawing on. Um, for, for, for presumed criminal, did you imp- uh, did you do any um, did you conduct any oral histories at all for this particular project? No, I mean, hold on. I, uh the short answer is no, um, not outside of kind of just having some loose conversations about people who I knew personally that would have also grown up in this kind of period. Right. Um, you know, I think. Uh, I think when we think about these books and when we think about um what we hope to kind of get done is, you know, this was clearly like one of my wishes, right? To have done more oral histories with those who kind of lived through and remember this moment. Uh, but it was also important for me for this book to kind of ground the ninth, like, you know, when 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 people think about the periodization that I implemented or the periodization, right, that the book covers, uh, the 1960s are the end point, right? Um, you know, I, I strategically and purposely end a book in 1964 because I was so interested in what this kind of moment looked like pre-World on uh, War on Crime. Um, but mm. I say all that to say, right, like a lot of the, the young people that I'm talking about are, you know, the young people that grew up in the 30s and 40s, right? Um, and not to say that these people aren't still around, 
But, you know, those people become a little tougher to track down or like, yeah, I remember the 1960s. Right. Um, but but, you know, that's a long way of me saying that it is one of my wishes that I had the time to conduct much more oral histories. Um, but as we all know, the demands of the tenure clock can limit some of the ambition for these first book projects. Um, there are a bunch of things I wish I did with the book, but like James Baldwin says, you, you never get the book you wanted. You settle for the book you get. And like Baldwin, when the book ended, there was still something there that I'm sure I didn't see. And while it's too late for me to do anything about it in this particular book, I do hope it inspires others to pick up where I left off and fill anything that I might have missed. Right. And, and hey, you know, that that's very insightful because it lets us all know that, um, hey, you can't you know, every book doesn't have everything. And the book that you get is a phenomenal one that I just, like I said, it was a page. And also one thing I also have to compliment you on as well. Um, it was a page turner. Um, you know, I, your periodization was really phenomenal. And also uh, the, the way you capture stories, um, especially in, in the, in the latter portion where you speak about like the aging process, that is something that I thought about for the entirety of that particular section where I'm like, dog, like they are, you know, they begin as, you know, youth, right. In transition. And as someone who's about to be 28 in a couple months, I'm like, well, they were on the other side and thinking about all the, all the transformations and all the changes that you, that you are having in your twenties. And you're doing them, you know, dealing with a criminal case and, you know, being in jail for uh, being in prison for the majority of that time. So I really uh, compliment you on um, on really parsing that those particular uh, aspects out in, in, in your work. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, more into your research, um, you know, I'm, I'm always fascinated with uh, statistics. And, uh, you know, so in your research, what role did crime statistics play um, in kind of like the public perceptions of black youth in the period that you're covering um, in New York? <laughs> yeah. So uh, crime statistics are terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I partly blame my uh, graduate advisor and mentor for ruining my own perception of crime statistics. But um, but they're largely responsible for driving the hysteria right around crime waves, um, around calls for more aggressive police practices. Right. We see stop and frisk come up in 1964 for the first time. And, you know, a big defense for why the city, quote unquote, needs stop and frisk is, you know, to protect police. And then people rely on crime statistics um, to defend why the police need this sort of protection. Um, but I think a part of what I uh, many carceral state historians have been having conversations about is that, you know, if crime is actually measurable, right, even with these statistics um, and, you know, there are people who kind of fall on both sides of this camp. But for many we believe that crime is immeasurable, right? Like it's damn near impossible to quantify crime. Um, we can quantify arrests, we can quantify incarceration, but neither actually serve as accurate indicators for crime because we know that arrest rates will always out be will always be out of context because of racist police practices, and we know incarceration rates don't necessarily equate to crime because. Many folks of color and many people in prison in general are there on plea deals, which 
again, is not an indicator on if a crime was actually committed or not. But that still doesn't, you know, mean that most of the general public doesn't rely on these statistics, right? Um, There's just something about the people wanting numbers, right, to understand the severity of any individual kind of, or of any moment, right? I mean, hell, we see that with Corona right now, right? And and then how people, you know, want to see Mm -hmm. the numbers, right? We see people, you know, making cases for reopening schools because young people don't seem to be as impacted, right? And so, you know, this idea that we want to see quantifiable, reliable statistics, um, is so, you know, ingrained in our nature, uh, in our society, when, you know, I think it's important, as, you know, Khalil Muhammad does in his work, right, Condemnation of Blackness, to understand where these statistics are actually kind of originated out of, not only in terms of the period, but also in terms of the intent. Um, and, and when you really kind of dive into the numbers, you know, it's important for us to ask, you know, what what is a breaking point, right? Um, you know, if one person is imprisoned wrongfully, that should be enough, right? It shouldn't necessarily be a percentage game or it shouldn't necessarily be, you know, a number in terms of representation allocation. But, you know, we should, you know, and, and that's why I kind of focus so much on the stories and not necessarily on the stats. Um, because, you know, as you read these stories, you, you see the injustice, right, that exists within our legal system. And uh, it doesn't matter if it's one person or 100 people. Um, the fact that it happens at all is, you know, a problem. And this is actually a, a great segue um, to my next question, which is, you know, specifically as the, you know, as the writer of, of this particular story um, or the chronicler in, in a way as well of, of this particular story, what does writing about black youths mean to you as a scholar and also right as, as, as a black American as well? Yeah, so, I mean, it means a lot, right, personally. I think, you know, I didn't necessarily grow up around a bunch of people who wrote books in the way that I'm surrounded all the time now by people who write books. But um, but I did grow up a bu- around a bunch of musician friends, or I did have a bunch of musician friends growing up. And so when I think about first albums, I think a lot about, or when I think about first books, I think a lot about first albums, right, um, or musicians' first albums. And you know, you, you you spend so much time on it, right? You grow with it during an incredibly transformational part of your life. And in a weird way, many people's first books, you know, I'd argue that almost all people's first books are somewhat biographical um, or autobiographical, right? And so while it wasn't necessarily a Black youth living in New York City from the 1930s to the 1960s, right, I was a Black youth whose familial roots are in New York City who sought some answers, whether they were directly or indirectly, about why things were the way they were in a city that's near and dear to my heart, even as it runs around with this facade of being a bastion of liberalism. And where it even gets more complicated for me is that I grew up with family on both sides, right? On both sides of the legal system. I, I, have family who have been NYPD for almost 30 years, recently retired. I have lawyers, I have judge friends, you know, family members. And then I also have many family members on the other side of the legal system. And 
So for me, and shout out to NYU Press for really honing this in on the cover image um, and the cover art was, um, you know, I, th- this it, it kind of captures a story that I really wanted to tell, right? And so when I told them, when I told NYU that I wanted this cover or this image on the cover, it wasn't only because I thought it was a dope cover photo, but I thought it showed the various levels, the complexities that spoke directly to much of who I am, right? How I was coming to the subject matter and what I really wanted this book to mean. Um, and for those of you who don't have the cover on you, um, I guess you can, you know, access the cover almost every anywhere now. But uh, <laughs> but I really do love the cover image, right? It's a it's a photo from 1966 Brooklyn. The patrolmen in the backdrop are amongst the 1,500 that were assigned to the neighborhood. And what I often like to point out is the diversity amongst the ranks, right? There are some black cops back there. Um, and there's no information related to the age of the boys in the image, but you can gather that they're all relatively young, especially the youngster who's peering out into the camera from the hole in the fence. And at its core, this image really does capture the crux of the book. And the heart of the problem today, right? And that's how normal the over-policing and under-protection of Black and brown communities has become. The boys continue to play ball. The officers continue to stand pat. Their proximity doesn't appear to phase them whatsoever. And we all know that increased interactions with the police lead to increased arrest rates. Arrest rates dictate crime statistics. And as a country, because we love these crime statistics, it helps us make sense of who is quote unquote presumed criminal, um, whether or not they actually committed a crime, right? That point becomes moot. And so, you know, for, so for me, again, as a black person and a black scholar kind of coming at this subject, I feel like those levels of complexity, uh, that are captured here really are, um, you know, are, are, are important to how I'm coming at this, right? How I'm coming at this subject matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Incredible. And, and, and as you said, like the image is, you know, it, it captures you. And so, like you said, shout out to NYU Press for that one. Uh, because as you said early in your earlier remarks, you know, uh, getting some of these images, uh, you know, onto the book cover and or in the book can be, uh, a little tough at times, so definitely shout out to them for 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 that one. Um, and and so uh, going back into the book one more time, um, you know one of you know it's interesting, right? We're in this moment of um, you know uh, uh, MJ's uh, the the last dance, right? And I say MJ's because we all know that it actually is his documentary, but that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. Um, you know, but uh. It, it actually segues into the, my next question about what role did leisure and recreation play um, in attempts that the 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 police, uh, the NYPD, um, and, and other police groups did to try to curb crime in New York City. Yeah, no, um, that's a great question, right? Um, and it's really at the center of my next book project, um, one that I feel I only scraped the surface for, and this one. Uh, But what we know is that by the late 1800s, city authorities were often calling for an increase in recreational spaces and facilities to curb youth crime. And so we see organizations such as YMCA's, police athletic leagues, 
Catholic youth organizations kind of respond and they jump at the opportunity to use sports to distract young people really from the social ills that city life was presenting, right? Whether we're talking about poor housing, disproportionate access to education, inadequate healthcare, um, which many read as contributing factors to the youth crime problem in the first place, right? And a crime problem since then. And so instead of correcting some of these underlying conditions, which would require some systemic overhauls, oftentimes city officials would very matter-of-factly respond with sports, right? With parks, with recreation. Um, But what I argue here, what I begin to argue here, and again, this is really kind of jumping into book two for me, is that these while these spaces did help, and while I think about sports as kind of an important space for Black and brown youths, right, especially as they kind of transition into adulthood, I also think it's important for us to realize how the state extended its surveillance powers and naturally its police powers uh, through these spaces as well. And so again, I think I, you know, I do a little bit of that in this book where I talk somewhat about what Jackie Robinson was doing at the Harlem YMCA. Um, I talk about uh, the origins of some of the police athletic leagues in New York City. And, you know, and so, so some of the stuff is there, but it's something that I'm really hoping to break out on into this next book project. Ooh, we, and you know me, I always love hearing, uh, about what, what's next because, uh, you, you, you know, we got to get you back on there for, for that one. You know that, right, Doc? Yeah, I got you. I got you, Adam. Alright, good deal, good deal, good deal. And hey, we got you on on, on tape, so uh, captured. Uh, but um, you know, and and also, you know, my next question is actually in a way almost a personal one. Uh, my brother um is a social worker, actually. Um, in in uh, he used to be a social worker actually in Harlem. Uh, between Harlem, he had an office in Harlem and uh, and in Brooklyn, and now he's uh back in Boston. And so learning about you know what it means to be a social worker and 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 all the roles that you can play. Uh, made me, you know, uh, at least in a slight way, understand per- particular portions of your book and, uh, you know, the social workers' role in, in, in presumed criminal. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about more about why social work and social workers played a vital role in, in, in your text? Yeah, no, I think, um, I think what happens, and, you know, for me, a lot of this, a lot of this tensions that I point or that, that I make the effort to point attention to that exists really between social workers and the police um, in the early chapters about how, you know, I, you know, I, I talk about how we kind of create crime through prevention um, really kind of hit at hit at this moment where ideas about crime exist in a period where we we have some lingering ethos that reach way back into the progressive era that we have to correct social conditions if we want to get ahead of the crime problem. Whereas as we branch forward into the post-war period, we really start to see those who believe that we need a bigger police state, right? A stronger police state, more carceral kind of sovereignty is how I kind of frame it in the book. Um, if we want to really address the quote unquote crime problem in our country and the tension that exists between the social workers and the police in this moment is that many of the social workers will tell you that quote unquote 
you know, and, and, and I talk about Jane Bolin, right, in that first chapter as well, who's the first black woman judge in U.S. history, um, at, you know, that many of them believe that a child is never basically bad, right? And, and this is sort of at the foundation of what many of the social workers are kind of coming to this with. Um, and why so many social workers get involved in the juvenile justice system in particular to fight for the the right for young people's cases to be individualized. And, you know, but the problem is we see kind of a, manip- a manipulation of that system as well, right? Um, you know, we see Jim Crow reel its head, right? We see segregation reel its head. And we know that the number of social workers... Um, and we know even, right, if we, if we, if we branch, if, if we had the audacity to branch that label over, uh, probation and parole officers as well, right, we know that the number of black ones in this period were not able to handle the influx of black youths who were finding themselves in the system, right? And so what we see is kind of this early inklings of, you know, an overworked public defender of black youths, right? Who then becomes overburdened by having way too many cases as white youths were kind of, again, kind of scathing by and having the privilege of having more resources available to them. And, you know, and so we see that they're able to navigate this system in a way that allowed them to to dodge any kind of criminalized stigma in ways that black youths were just kind of you know, rolling with the punches and, um, you know, picking up so much of this burden that was happening. But, um, but, but that, but I think it's important again to kind of highlight that tension that exists between social workers and the police, because I do think it's a tension that's real, right? The police felt like the social workers were encroaching on their space, on their jobs. Um, and they felt like they had the authority to make, to do the work that so many of these, uh, social workers were were doing that, um, you know, we 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 that those tensions are real, right? And then how they play out. Um, and I think you know one of the cases where uh, the social worker kind of aligns themselves with the police is, is you know with the formation of um, police athletic leagues, right? And I talk about Henrietta Addison as being one of these social workers that develops POW in this kind of effort to to kind of break down this barrier between police and the black communities or between police and the communities in general. Right. But to really kind of create this image of a quote unquote friendly policeman in the process. Mm. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating stuff here. Um, and, and, and for me, right. I'm like, you know, as, as folks who listen to the podcast often know, you know, you're, you're somewhere between, I think 64 and 65, uh, uh, in, in the interview uh, queue. Um, and one of my favorite questions is always about change over time, but not of the book, but of the person actually writing the book. So can you talk to us about, right, seeing the transition pretty much from, you know, from dissertation all the way through pretty much the rest of the decade now, and we're talking in 2020. How has writing presumed criminal in all of its different iterations how has that maybe even changed your, how, how has that changed you as a person? It's a deep question. Sorry, I was pondering for a second. Um, okay. I'd like to say that it hasn't changed me as a person, right? That I mean, aside from maybe dressing down more these days, like 
I don't mind running around academic conferences with a backpack, a Yankee cap, and some sneakers. Um, <laughs> but I take a lot of pride in being still, you know, approachable, affable, and knowing while work can be a reflection of who we are, it's really just what we do, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so in that sense, I don't want to, you know, come off as, you know, I have a book, you know, I'm, I'm a different person in that sense, right? Um, but, but, but I guess where, where it probably did change and is really my, my broader kind of conceptions, and, and again, what I kind of made mention towards earlier about thinking of the next book project, um, you know, I, I feel like the first book for many of us, especially as a first generation college student, let alone a first generation PhD, is is proving that we can write a book, right? That we can finish a book, that this is something that we can actually do. Um, and that opens us, or it's opened many of us, and it's proven that it's opened many of us to take a little more chances and take a little more risk with the next one. Um, and so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about kind of the scope of that next book project with one that isn't necessarily as limited in period, uh, limited in resources, bounded by geography in the same ways that I think I approached this one, right? For me, a lot of how I approached this book was um, to make sure it was something that I could write, right? That I could write and that I could finish. Um, the second book is, it's, it's, it's much more ambitious, right? And in and, and its, and its sense. And, you know, I, I couldn't be able to start thinking about that book without having written this one. Um, beyond that, I mean, I, I'll tell you that it's probably changed people's perception of me, right? not necessarily, Ooh, now that's, you know, now that's interesting, right? I mean, there, there, there's always this element in academia, right? That, oh my God, you wrote a book, right? Like a book book. And, you know, but, the, but any, anybody who's been close to me for the long haul and are who, who were there and proud to kind of celebrate this moment and this feat. None of them were there in that period as, as in any kind of moment of surprise, right? Um, but, you know, for many, you know, it, the, the first book is just sort of a marker, right? And oh, oh, that, that you can do it um, or that it, it's something that you're able to kind of achieve. Uh, and so, uh, so, yeah, so, no, I think um, I posted <laughs> I posted on Twitter for Mother's Day last weekend, or this past weekend, a picture of me at my first AHA conference, um, and my mom was there. And then I posted a picture of of me with my mom after the book came out. And and I thought what was funny was, one, how much I aged and my mom didn't. But beyond that, I also (laughs) thought it was, I also thought what was funny was, um, just, you know, I had a terrible looking suit on at my first AHA, right? And I was just like, man, like, here I am with, like, a bad suit that's not really kind of capturing who I am. I, you know, I have this tie on and I, I look crazy uncomfortable. Um, and now with the book being out in terms of thinking about, like, how it's really kind of changed me as a person, right? It's like, while I can still dress the part, I... I, I a, a lot of how I dress, a lot of how I show up to these conferences, a lot of how I navigate academia is so much more confident in kind of who I am as a person. Um, and having the first book out, getting some solid reviews of the book, 
um, was sort of the affirmation that I needed um, to really become this person in this space uh, who hopes to be able to give back and not pass on any kind of generational trauma to the graduate students and younger scholars kind of coming up behind me. And uh, as one of those people coming up behind, Dr. Sudler, I can attest, he ain't, he ain't with that mess. You know, that's <laughs> off the top of the dome, right? Um, and and so, you know, you know, you're at Emory, right? A phenomenal place, a phenomenal place. Atlanta, beautiful, right? <laughs> um, and, and so I'm always, so I'm also interested in, right, we take presumed criminal and place it in your classroom, right? How does... Um, how, how do elements of presumed criminal find their way into your actual classroom um, at, um, at at Emory and other places that you uh, get, give talks? Hmm. So, so probably two ways, right? I've I've never I, I've yet to garner up the gumption to teach my own book, uh, even as I teach classes that the book is kind of directly in its historiographical kind of world realm or world. And um, so like this semester, I taught a class, a graduate readings course, Race, Rights, and Resistance in the Carceral City, right? Naturally, a book like mine kind of fits, um, but I didn't want to teach it, right? Um, and I chose not to teach it. Um, though though I, I have been and I am more than available uh, to Skype in or Zoom in like we are. Um, to anybody who does decide to teach it, um, you know, to, to field any questions in that sense. Um, I've just not gotten to the point where I, um, you know, have been thinking about teaching it or trying to figure out ways to kind of comfortably teach it in that sense. Because I, I do think, you know, me being in the classroom, I'm naturally going to hit at so many of the big points, right? Or so many of the big thoughts and ideas that I was hoping to, uh, to kind of convey through that text. And so whenever I have a platform to teach, to speak about the work or my research more generally, I, uh, I just always want people to remember me as someone who believes and preaches that one in the United States, we don't have a justice system. We have a legal system. That is that we have a system that has been designed to follow letter of the law and not necessarily the spirit of fairness. Um, and two, and we kind of talked about this earlier, that crime is immeasurable, right? Don't believe the numbers. And even when you can, no one's life should ever be forever judged by their worst decisions. And those are kind of two of the big points or underlying kind of codes, if you will, right, that I really kind of wanted presume criminal to convey. And there, there are also two codes and underlying points that I, that I carry in with me to all of my classes, to all of my public speaking opportunities um, that, I, that I hope people kind of get at, right? So, so read presume criminal because you can see how these points are captured in various stories. Um, but I've never taught it in a class because I bring those two points with me kind of everywhere I go. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. And so, um, because, yeah, you know, I'm always um, fascinated with how, 
you know, either the book itself, right, in book form or how uh, elements of the text, you know, you know, are incorporated in classes because so uh, it's, it's always cool as well to kind of think about like riffing uh, race, you know, ri- like, like the triple R's, right? And then the semicolon of what you put after that. So, you know, those little, you know, uh, meta things I'm always fascinated by too. Um, and so, you know, you, you kind of broached this a little bit before, but I'll ask you this uh, more directly. Um, how does presumed criminal help us, right, as the readers and, and even yourself? Um, and like you said, you kind of broached this before, but how does presumed criminal help us better understand the world that we live in today, right? Especially even in the COVID world, right? So can, can you speak uh, more directly towards that particular question as well before we head out? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so one of the fights that I won with NYU Press, and this is no slight to NYU Press, right? I had a great time uh, publishing my first book over there. You know, my editors that I worked with were great. Um, but one of the fights that I actually won was in the title, right? Uh, initially, they pitched back a title to me that was presumed a criminal. Um, and I <sighs> sat with that for a long while because... I felt like the article was changing a lot of what I wanted the book to convey, right? That is, presumed a criminal changes the nature of the word criminal um, from adjective to noun, right? Um, and, and, And that's not what I wanted to do, right? Because... Again, as somebody who believes that crime is immeasurable, Black youths in particular who are navigating this system and are navigating this world um, are going to be or have all, too often been presumed criminal even without having committed an actual crime, right? So for me, removing that article was, removing the A was imperative um, and something that, you know, I built up the gumption to to say, listen, like if you don't take the title as presumed criminal, like I would potentially move the book elsewhere, right? Um, mm. Because, because again, when we think about the world that we live in today, and I think you know, thinking about it in Corona times in particular, uh, when we see the policing of Black and Brown communities, what we see in New York City, right, when the police are giving out masks to white New Yorkers and beating up Black and Brown ones. Um, we see this kind of ideology, this thought process that, you know, somehow, some way that these black communities that are over-policed and underprotected um, are still doing something that they should not be doing, right? Even in the even in light of policing white neighborhoods in ways that we understand that these people are quote unquote breaking the rules or breaking the ordinances by being outside and not social distancing, um, but the response to those communities and the response to those behaviors are drastically different. Uh, because so many of these, especially white youths or young white people, are perceived to be young forever when so many of these black youths and so many of these brown youths and so many of, like, are perceived to be presumed criminal. Um, And again, it doesn't matter if, in fact, the crime was actually committed, right? What matters is kind of this the embodiment of this ideology of how the perception of black and brown kids in our country continues to persist today. Um, 
and you know, and, and we see kind of this much longer history where we can't necessarily show a change over time in practice, uh, even as we talk about some of those changes over time in theory. Outstanding. You know, this very, very, very important stuff, like you said, especially in this moment. Um, and these crime statistics come out often now. And, and so it's just really been, you know, an inspiring thing. And so, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very much inspired, you know, by a, a lot of the work that you do. And so it actually makes me think about just like kind of riffing for a second. You know, I, I was actually listening to uh, the Girl Trek discussion with uh, Angela Davis and uh, uh, Nikki Giovanni this weekend. Um, and, uh, one of the co-founders actually asked, uh, Giovanni what inspired her. So, so it kind of makes me think like for you, right, the book is done and you're, you know, you're, you're looking at other projects and, and, and still fielding, thank God, interviews for this one. Um, but so, so it makes me think, you know, what slash who actually inspires you to do the work that you do? I mean, So I'm inspired at, at, at different levels by different people, right? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was funny because just before I hopped on this interview, I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine who has a book coming out uh, this fall, The Campus Color Line. Shout out Eddie Cole, whose um, book is coming out from Princeton University Press here in, uh, I think in September, if I'm not mistaken, but this upcoming fall for sure. Um, because he was, you know, putting the last minute touches on his acknowledgments. And, you know, for anybody who wants to read the acknowledgments of my book or who decides to read the acknowledgments of the book, you know, you'll get a sense of who inspired me through this project. And the acknowledgments, while, you know, some might read them as one that's generally on par with many people's first books, um, you know, the acknowledgment section of my book was really tough to write because, you know, there, there are some of us in, or that run around academia that'll tell you that we're in the academy, we're not of it. And so while it was incredibly important for me to include those who have financially put me in positions to make this book a reality, whether it was fellowships or institutions, right? I've had various jobs since completing the PhD. Um, you know, I, had a, I was fortunate enough to have a postdoc. I was fortunate enough to get some extra grant money from Florida Atlantic, which was my first tenure track job out um, before I came to Emory. Um, much of the inspiration for the book and much of the support from the book was from kind of family and friends, right, that I grew up with. And so in between there, I had an opportunity to go back to University of Delaware and teach a year at a department in Black American Studies, which is now Africana Studies. Um, and while there, I also had a, you know, I was, you know, working on the book, though I was mostly teaching because you know, I taught a lot that year as a visiting professor. But um, oh, yeah. I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I also, um, you know, got to, got to catch up with a lot of like the, the guys that I grew up with, right? Um, by being close to New York, like, you know, reaching out to friends in Delaware, um, you know, guys that I went to high school with, guys that I went to undergrad with. And for many of them um, who are inc- who were incredibly proud of the accomplishment, who all ran out and bought books, if anybody wants to hop on my social media page and see some of the videos and pictures of, you know, friends and family holding the book and taking pictures of the book, 
Um, it's all there. My Instagram and Twitter are public, so you can kind of jump on there if you want to check it out. But um, but for me, so much of the inspiration comes from them, right? Um, so much of the inspiration comes from friends and family who I grew up with who have absolutely not one sense of what it means to be an assistant professor fighting up against a tenure clock, um, you know, who are out here working, you know, they're their everyday jobs, raising families, raising kids. Um, you know, meanwhile, for me, I had, you know, to finish at the rate and at the pace that I finished, a lot of that was on hold, right? Um, and so so for me, I look to them as sort of a, a, as inspirational, right? I have some godchildren that I, you know, think about a lot. I have, you know, as kind of using this book and, and coming out with something that that's naturally going to outlive me. Um, and I, I think about I think about it in terms of them serving as an inspiration of what I mean in their worlds, right? And so, um, you know, when I when I, when I get those text messages from you know little cousins taking seventh grade and eighth grade history classes because they have a a doctor of history in the family, um, hey, can you help me with this you know homework assignment? You know, I, I take as much pride in them because a lot of them are, you know, indeed my source of inspiration, right? So beyond the academy, right, and beyond, you know, I can go on for days talking about, you know, those who have inspired me in the academic world. Um, but a large source of my inspiration comes from outside of the academy, um, even as I navigate the world inside, right? And, you know, I was reminded by that when I went home and taught at University of Delaware that year. As I was, you know, man, I have this book coming out next year. I'm working on this. I'm working on that. And my boys regularly remind me, dude, one, we don't care. But two, we love you with and without that book. Right. Um, And so their perception of me wasn't going to change whether I wrote a book or not. Um, And a large source of my, uh, for me, the inspiration that drives it or the inspiration that kind of keeps me going and navigating this space is so I can kind of create the reputation, build the brand, um, you know, that that's one reputable inside the academy, but that is also tied to communities from outside the academy. Man, I'm sure there's going to be some teary-eyed people listening to this. Lord have mercy. <laughs> you, you touch some souls, Doc. You touch some souls. And, uh, and yeah, right. Like, you know, I, th- I think, you know, a lot of us need that, right, to, to remember um, especially because for many of us, we are with those people, um, you know, be, because of quarantine, right? Probably some of your students and, um, you know, folks in high school and such too. And so um, I, I really appreciate your 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 answer because I think that it gets to the root of, uh, for, for a lot of people, right? That they do the work that they do because they love it, right? But at the end of the day, they are more than their work, that they are people uh, you know, that they're multidimensional. And it's also great to learn and to hear that your friends told you, no matter if you have the book or not, and hey, we love you with the book too, right? Don't forget about that. But even without it, that they still affirm you as, you know, as their boy, right? As their as their friend. Uh, because I think that a lot of people um, can, can, can really use that, right? And, and, and could really use that, especially in these times where things feel so daunting. Um, but I can tell you something that wasn't daunting. Talking to you for the last hour 
it has <laughs> grown by quickly. Um, it is amazing. And as, as uh, Dr. Sudler said, uh, please find him on social media as well. He's a He's a, a, an amazing person and a great interlocutor on uh, Twitter for these last dance uh, Sundays um, as well. And, uh, you know, is there any last words that you want to give the listeners before we get up out of here? No. Um, I mean, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for the support. Thank you, Adam, for, for this podcast. I always do look forward to seeing who you, you know, are able to kind of sit down and have these conversations with. Um, you know, I think. As, as one of my mentors, I don't, I don't want to say beat into me because I don't want that to get taken out of context, but as one of my mentors kind of, you know, ingrained into my soul, um, it is always incredibly important for us to continue to pay it forward um, as scholars who continue to kind of advance in terms of our own careers. Um, and so, um, you know, you, you, you always know, Adam, that you can reach out to me whenever you need to. Um, and that uh, I'm a I'm am I am indebted to you in ways, and and I'll continue to pay it forward and mark the ways for somebody like you coming up and through this thing, um, as anybody else. Hey, hey, I, I'll take that. I will take that. God, thank you for Dr. Sudler, and we got all this <laughs> on tape too. Um, and um, and once again, folks, we have had the amazing opportunity to discuss with Dr. Carl Sudler, Assistant Professor of History at Emory, about his amazing book published by our friends at New York University Press last year in 2019. And this amazing book is called Presumed Criminal, Black Youth and the Justice System in Post-War New York. Y'all, please go out and support this book and, and go to NYU Press directly and buy it if you can. And also, please, if you like new books in African-American studies, how about you go and subscribe? Check out, right? Like Doc said, you know, it's a great way to wake up at 630 in the morning and see, hey, we got a new podcast to listen to, right? And so please subscribe to the ne- to, to the podcast and also the network. And hey, t- let us know how we're doing. Rate us and review us wherever you get your podcast, Apple, wherever you get them. And so once again, folks, I'm your host of New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. And I'm coming to you here from New Brunswick, New Jersey, right? I'm loving the, I'm loving this life and I'm really loving the work that we're doing at the podcast to provide content for folks to, to at least listen and do something else for, I guess, what would be a little over an hour for this one. And so signing out, folks, New Books in African-American Studies, Adam McNeil, over and out. <laughs>